This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. So obviously with cap and trade, we're going to talk about uh, how you're feeling in regard to uh, the prices, the price of gas going up. Well, the price of all, all fuel. I mean, everything gas related, any fossil fuel is going up. Uh, and, you know, as I've said many times, we all want to save the environment. Kathleen Wynne seems to make it sound like we either we do or we don't, and I don't believe it's that at all. I think pretty much most Canadians, most Ontarians want to save the environment. But can we trust Wynne's cap-and-trade plan? It's as simple as that. Can we trust this? The Auditor General said we've overpaid by $37 billion for her other green energy plan, the one that she called a mistake and accused us of being bad actors for and such. Uh, and, you know, we've got other places like B.C. who are using a carbon tax. So what's the difference between the two? One's obviously more transparent than the other, which really bothers me when it comes to cap and trade because they just don't tell you where the money goes. It's just it's just an excuse. She just stands up and preaches, if I don't take this money from you, we're all going to die. And as I said, I mean, every single political party now, I mean, the poor Green Party, they don't even have a movement anymore because every party is green. Uh, but Kathleen Wynne doesn't seem to be getting that message. Uh, instead, she just thinks that you don't want it uh, or you want to kill the planet if you don't agree with her. And it's not that at all. We all want to save the planet. It's just we don't trust her and with all of our money. And again, the only example we have to point to or the latest example we have to point to is simply uh, the mistake that she made in regard to the energy plan by not taking into consideration how much this was, is all costing you. And how, you know, she's trying to save the planet and and create a legacy for herself as a tree hugger uh, on the backs of Ontarians. And again, I don't think you're going to find an Ontarian that doesn't want to help the planet and save the planet. But I'm not convinced that this money is going exactly where she says it's going. And if there's been any cost analysis on this, if there's been any benefit, any due diligence the exact same questions we asked when she started installing, you know, wind turbines and again, overspent on all of this by $37 billion. And they'll constantly talk about refurbishing infrastructure and getting off coal. It's like, well, we've been doing that for 15 years. Everybody has to do that. Every province has to refurbish their infrastructure, every state, every country. Not, no one's paying what we're paying. And, and, and again, I, I, I'm, I'm all for saving the planet. I'm just simply not convinced that, uh, that the money's going where it says it's, it's supposed to go. All right, let's bring in Dan McTagg. I'm sure he is a very busy guy today, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analystgasbuddy.com, which I'm sure is just smoking up the Internet today, and he is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today? Well, I'm fine, Scott. I just wish I could actually catch a moment to uh, wish everybody... Uh... Uh, Merry Christmas, which I didn't get, and a Happy New Year to go with it. But uh, uh, it's not not always pleasant to tell people the bad news. Uh, they know that 2017 is going to be a lot more expensive. Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a lot of people were looking optimistic when or be, trying to be optimistic when they were on their holidays and, and ringing in the new year. But you know, here we are, surprise, big bang, boom! Uh, uh, the prices of pretty much everything fossil fuel related uh, is about to go up if it hasn't gone up already. You think it's going to go up by more than the four to five cents though that we've seen today? What's behind that? Yeah, Scott, I, I, it may be early days because the real trading market for oil and energy doesn't really start until next Monday. But there are indications that uh, if OPEC gets its act together, 
and gets a number of nations, including Russia, Mexico, and other nations, and they appear to be going in that direction to cut back and curb oil output, you could see oil rise, you know, as much as $10 a barrel between now and mid-2017. I know that sounds like a long way away, but uh, the fact is that uh, there is an expectation that that price will rise. And with it, of course, gasoline. And that's also aggravated by another circumstance, um, which I'm looking at very intently as oil goes up, the Canadian dollar is not responding to the medicine. In other words, because it's been our main uh, export item over the past several years, normally when crude prices go up, so does the value of the loonie. Currently it isn't. It's still staying at a, a rather weak level, and it's likely that in the next few weeks the same uh, dim view of its uh, future uh, continues to uh, to haunt, and that's ah. likely that we might see a depreciation of the Canadian dollar versus the U.S. greenback. Why is that important? No, why is that happening? Yeah, How, why is that happening, Dan? Simply because usually, as you mentioned, when we start to see prices go up, it's good for our dollar. What's the difference this time out? I think the economics of the country are not going to be as robust as the United States, and I think investors are looking at that. I'm also, of course more cynically looking at the possibility of uh, changes by the new administration in, in Washington, and that has investors believing that uh, there's perhaps a better climate for investment, no carbon taxes, lower taxes, a stronger economy. Uh, there may be a number of reasons that uh, Canada may be sideswiped, but the fact is our oil is not getting the respect it normally gets. We are currently, as I would say, the past month, no longer the petrol loony. Um, and so, uh, you know, last year at this time, and let me give you a more vivid example. Oil was in the 37, 36 range. It took 138 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar. Today it's 135 to buy the same U.S. dollar. So we've gained a little bit, but the but, but crude is at $53, $54 a barrel. So something is not working here, and it, uh, it has to do with a lot more concern about the fundamentals in Canada, which really explains, Scott, why I think it's an awful time to bring in any type of tax that, uh, you know, has the effect, unintended or otherwise, of um, of putting uh, you know of putting pressure on consumers and uh, perhaps unintentionally hurting the investment climate, much less existing business here in the province. How or when will we know if these schemes are working? How like is there a, is there a timeline for this, Dan? Yeah, you know it's very hard to measure uh, how you have climate change based on what Ontario does or Alberta does or what Canada eventually does uh, in the wider scheme of things because there's no set rules. Uh, or set benchmark in which climatologists can actually say, hey, you know, we can we could say that uh, Canada's departure from producing X amount of CO2 is going to lead to lower uh, uh, amounts of, uh, of of emissions. More importantly, the Auditor of General of Ontario uh, very clearly last month said that this particular model of cap and trade is not going to lead to any appreciable levels of uh, reducing, uh, you know, climate-changing CO2, if, in fact, you believe that. Now, Scott, you know where I stand on that, but I'm going to accept these arguments because it's uh, it's pushed as a, as a matter of fact. If this doesn't work out, then the public will have been forced to pay a lot more for something that didn't work worse. When you think about the increase on the, um, on the side of uh, diesel, going up 6.1 cents a litre, that's something that's going to reverberate throughout the entire economy. When you mess around with diesel, you're really messing around with the cornerstone of every economy. And so uh, I think there's a real trouble ahead that the government may not have anticipated. Certainly the timing isn't good for 2017. 
Uh, what is, you know, you talked about the goals and, and how these, the goals won't even be met with these strategies that, that, that they're working on now. What's in it for the government? Is this about the PR around being environmentally conscious? Is this about strictly a source of revenue? What's in it for them? It, it, does the buck not stop here? Well, I think the, if I'm to take the Premier's comments and those to the same extent as the Prime Minister to tell the world that Canada wants to be part of this, whether or not it has an effect is to show that we're doing our part. I, I think the cost uh, of doing that and following that mantra, that rhetoric, uh, is an extravagant cost to the Canadian economy at a time when uh, we are looking at sluggish growth, at a time when there may be more appropriate ways of approaching uh, CO2 reductions, if indeed you accept that CO2 is leading to uh, the sky falling. Uh, what we're talking about here, by the way, is a change of 0.85 degrees in the past 120 years. So whether that's even measurable or not, I'm not even going to get into that debate. The fact is that this may be too high a cost uh, at a time when I think you're burdening people. Many people want to be on the right side of this. We want to be on the side of angels. But when it comes down to the cost, which is going to be a lot more than $156 as suggested by some, including the government, um, one just has to look at gasoline, and let me give you that one. I've used it many times before. Dan McTague drives a 2012 Ford Escape four-cylinder, 2.5 liters. So I'm not driving a gas guzzler. It uses about 65 liters a week. I have several children. I have to get them to and from. I think I'm an average family. Uh, we are likely to see about a 3.1 cent, uh, 3.1 dollar increase a week as a result of uh, the 4.4 cents a liter. That leads ultimately to about $150 a year just for that vehicle alone. So my natural gas bill is going up. My grocery prices are likely to go up as a result of diesel prices and pretty much everything else. I don't see how one can make the contention that average impact packs will be $150 when it looks a whole lot more like $300. Uh, we're opting, obviously, for a cap-and-trade. B.C. has gone for a carbon tax. Which way's better? Why B.C.? I mean, B.C., they're the environmental province. Why are they? we doing something different from them? Uh, good question. I think the fact is they just wanted to have a carbon tax with the goal of trying to increase prices to force emitters to drop the amount of emissions where they can. Ontario wants to do it by taking the money and uh, giving it to companies to do that and incentivizing them through both... Uh, I guess, uh, yeah, stick and carrot. Uh, you do it our way, uh, you get the, uh, the carrot, and we'll give you subsidies to do that. We'll build better transport. We'll build all sorts of wonderful things. Electrify, if you can believe that, with the context of the cost of electricity, uh, a lot more vehicles, battery-powered, etc. But they also have the stick, which is if you don't do it, here's the tax. Well, most companies love that because they don't pay for it. They just pass it on to consumers. So, the carrot goes to the companies and the stick goes to consumers. That's where this thing is falling apart. And if I had any input in doing this, I would have said follow the carbon tax rule and methodologies that are used in BC. If you have to choose one, you have to choose your poison, it might as well be that one, which is revenue neutral, by the way. It goes back directly to the people who've been paying for it. And, and carbon tax appears to be more transparent, does it not? Or is it just the well, politician yeah. that's imp- implementing it? Yeah, it's it? transparent. It's, what you see is what your government collects. It yeah. gives right back. The case of carbon taxes is it's all over the map. You don't know who gets it. It's, uh, you know, pick and choose your, your favorites. Uh, we've been down that road before with conflicts. Uh, I don't think it's a smart thing to do. Uh, more importantly, I think when you look at the, the carbon market, it's subject to all sorts of volatility. Uh, what happens if you don't make your $1.8 billion so you can invest and make uh, commitments to municipalities or whoever it is you're doing? What if it winds up being half of that? What if it winds up being double that? Now, that's great, wonderful, great windfall, but you've also pretty much uh, 
skewed your economy. How is this being sold to the public? I mean, normally when you take somebody for more tax or more money, they get something out of it, you know, whether it's infrastructure. I mean, I mean that's how they got away with raising electricity prices. They just keep telling well, us it's no. about updating infrastructure and getting us off coal. This just seems to go nowhere. Yeah, I think people are willing to give the benefit of the doubt to anybody who has come up with an idea. I think we all get the environment. We're all concerned about it uh, to varying degrees. Um, but uh, there's really no need for most. And I, you know, I've worked both sides of the, as voter and as a politician. Quite often, people will look at you and say, "All right, make sure it doesn't hurt me." Um, but I'm with you on the idea. Let's see how it works. This one is a little different because what's been proposed here is that uh, somehow the sky is falling, and that you, if you don't pay for it, uh, you know, our kids and we see the ads uh, have the amount of ads. Perhaps that's also being paid for by the t- new taxes that uh, are shaming us and saying our children are telling us that you're not leaving a, a better planet than the one you've inherited. Uh, I think this is going to probably fall flat in its face uh, only because uh, I don't think the public really has a, a, an appreciable understanding of what it means to them. It's easy to vote for these things, and certainly in Ontario they did, and federally they did for parties that were promoting the green agenda. Uh, but when it comes down to paying for it, uh, you know, you have that sort of heart stop moment as we see with with hydro bills um maybe this wasn't such a brilliant idea and unfortunately sometimes you have to experience this kind of pain to know it's bad and unfortunately i think uh, leadership uh, is, is certainly lacking in terms of trying to prevent us from going down a road that we know is ultimately going to be too costly and ultimately not going to achieve the objective that we all thought it was, and that's reduction of CO2. Is there much option for opposition parties on this? Uh, Kathleen Wynne obviously painting everybody who doesn't buy into this as someone who's just completely ignoring the problem. It's either black or white with her. There's no happy medium. Either you're in or you're out. Uh, And says that the opposition parties have no plan. They would just like, you know, we're just going to turn into China under these guys. Uh, is there anything other other parties can do? Is this reversible? Well, keep doing this, and you will send a lot more business to other places like the United States and like China. Uh, many people are simply going to say this is not the way to go about it. I think this is done gradually. I think business gets this. I think it should be done over a 10, 20, 30-year period. Uh, year period. The, you know, as I said now for the third time, the sky is not falling. Yeah. Uh, the climate does change. Uh, if there are issues out there, that's fine. Please don't call CO2 pollution. We've all learned from science that it's part of photosynthesis. It's what gives plant life. Uh, It's not to suggest that we should be irresponsible about it, but to somehow demonize it, uh, demonize CO2, and then have policies erected around that as if it's absolute. You know, we're not ignorant. We need information. And now that people are being forced to pay a lot more, I think you're going to be a lot more, there's going to be a lot more public interest, personal interest from people, not from politicians, bureaucrats, technocrats. Uh, or the, a scientist morphing as politicians out there, uh, doing their own due diligence, saying, I don't believe this because I don't think the science is established, therefore I shouldn't be paying for it. As for those who believe, and I saw many of them yesterday, oh, this is wonderful, I don't mind being taxed and get more vehicles off the road. By all means, help yourself. Start, you know, generosity begins at home. And I think some of these individuals should do exactly what they said, uh, take their cars off the, off the roads or walking to work or wherever the case may be, but don't impose it on the people who have nothing to do with uh, uh, this scheme or this proposal. And for good reasons, are skeptical, not just about the science behind this, but absolutely the politics, which I think is flawed.
Dan McTagg has been with us. Of course, GasBuddy.com to find out more and former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic. I know you're busy. Thanks for the time, Dan. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. Happy New Year. Back at you. Happy New Year. (laughs) Put your feet up when you get a chance. Oh, yeah. Maybe next year. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've got David Sweet coming up. Uh, Before we do that, I just want to play this clip of, uh, you might remember we had Kathleen Wynn on prior to uh, the Christmas break, and I I came right out and asked her, how are we supposed to have faith in her cap-and-trade plan when she has admitted the other energy plan, you know, had a mistakes. There was no cost analysis. There was no no due diligence. She didn't realize how much of an impact it was going to have on you. How could you not run those numbers? How could you not know that? And as a result, how do we have faith in cap and trade when obviously there wasn't due diligence done there? And here was her answer. I think there's been a lot of learning over the last uh, few years as we've as we've made these major changes to the uh, to the electricity system. But Scott, you know, overall, the changes that we have made have meant that. Our air is cleaner in Ontario. We are ahead of the curve in terms of the reduction of pollution, of of greenhouse gas emissions in our air. And other jurisdictions are going to have to now work to catch up. If you look at what's happening in Alberta, there's a plan in Alberta now to shut down the coal plants. But they're just at the beginning of that process. We've completed that. And so in order to be globally competitive, we are actually ahead of the game. So I... You know, I, I completely accept and take responsibility for the, um, the electricity prices, and I know that there's more that we have to do. But I also take responsibility, and we, we all in Ontario can take pride in the fact that we've got cleaner air than so many other jurisdictions, even jurisdictions that surround us in the United States. We've got, uh, we've got a jump on a renewable industry that is, is now an export industry to other jurisdictions, exporting technology that has been developed. So there ha- there's a success part of this story as well, Scott, that we, uh, that we need not to miss. All right, that's what uh, Premier Kathleen Wynne had to say when I asked her uh, how we can have faith on a cap-and-trade plan when it appears the due diligence, the numbers, the cost analysis was not done for her electricity plan. Uh, let's bring in David Sweet, Flamborough Glanbrook Conservative MP, and with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? David, are you there? Have we lost David? Hang on, let me try again. All right. David, are you there? No, we've lost David. Uh, you try to get him back? Okay. So, uh, you know, again, and when you listen to Premier Wynne in the legislature and she's taking questions and, and, and comments from the NDP and the Conservatives, she just paints them all as being fossil fuel burning pigs and that they have no, no plan, and that it's either her way or the highway. And I reiterate, I, I don't think that's what people are concerned about. I think everybody wants to be green. We, we've put the Green Party right out of business. I think the point is, is that we want to make sure that there's been due diligence done. Uh, David Sweet is with us, Flamborough Glanbrook, Conservative MP, and on the line now. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm great, Scott. How about you? Good. Thank you for taking the uh, the time to join us. We greatly appreciate it. Happy New Year to you. Well, Happy New Year to you. And if I may just take one second, I just wanted to extend my deep condolences to the uh, former Chief uh, Colin Mm. Miller's family who uh, passed away on Friday. We just want 
them to know that the whole community is thinking of them. Great. Uh, well said. And uh, I, I met him uh, once, and uh, I don't think there were, I couldn't find anybody that ever said anything negative about him. And that doesn't happen often with a police chief, does it? No, he was just a, he, you would have met him a lot because you yep. see a lot of the charitable events. And yep. of course, he was at so many, and yep. uh, just a great community contributor all the while that not only when he was a chief, but after he retired. So it was just a great loss to the community. Uh, you just had, uh, and, and a lot of politicians have met with their constituents uh, over New Year's and such, and had levies and such. What are your constituents saying to you specifically about things like cap-and-trade and electricity prices? Well, I, obviously they're, they're greatly concerned, but if I can just go to the comment that uh, Kathleen Wynne made on your, on your interview there about being globally competitive, I, I think to be globally competitive, you have to understand that the environment is very important. Obviously, I have six children and four grandchildren. I want the air and the water and the land to be clean. But it's only one aspect of our responsibility. I mean, we have security, we have social programs, and we have the economy, which is really the goose that lays the golden eggs to fund everything. And if you, if you don't make these decisions based on your own economic uh, opportunities and challenges, uh, then you end up uh, in a situation that we find ourselves in in Ontario where, the, uh, where we have a situation where the, the, you know, P, there's actual uh, investors who are thinking of going other places because it's so expensive to run a business here. We're just less competitive. When will we know if this is a success or not? I mean, obviously, Ontario is going with a cap-and-trade, as has Quebec, B.C., into a carbon tax. Um, should, shouldn't we find out what works and all use it? Uh, should there be a national plan? How do you sort through this stuff? Well, listen, I think the main thing is that the jurisdictions that uh, are putting this in place, and now it's mixed, now we have... Uh, you know, uh, the prime minister who said he wanted to get an agreement with the provinces wasn't able to get agreement with the provinces, so now he's going to impose a carbon tax on those provinces that don't take action. Uh, and uh, no one is coming forth and saying exactly what the mechanism that they're using, how, how that's actually going to fight climate change. Like, you know, what exactly are you going to fund from the cap-and-trade system? If you do a carbon tax, exactly what projects are you going to invest in? None of these questions are answered in the House of Commons. They haven't been answered publicly. And that's my real concern is that uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, governments who are asking people for more taxes here and uh, in, this, in this federal, in the federal responsibility carbon tax and uh, absolutely no way of, uh, tran- no transparency and no way of telling people where the money's going to go. Is this just another revenue stream? Have governments realized that uh, constituents are sensitive to the environment, want to do the right thing, so uh, people are capitalizing on it? I mean, is there due diligence being done here? Well, again, when, you, when no one is able to explain exactly how they're going to reduce emissions, what they're going to use this money to invest in in order to make the air cleaner for the next generation, uh, then, you know, that those kind of questions come up naturally. Uh, you know, is this, is this just a tax grab? And uh, I would suggest to you that, that that would be the case without any other evidence. And again, you know, it's all you need, all the, you know, whether it's the federal liberals or the provincial liberals, they need only to answer these substantive questions that have been asked in Ottawa or at Queen's Park. Uh, as you mentioned, we just played uh, a piece of the interview with the Premier, and I asked her how we have confidence in, in her cap-and-trade plan when, obviously, there were mistakes made uh, with her energy plan. Um, 
she's her answer was from what I could gather is we're more experienced in cap and trade. Is there something we can learn from other provinces or other states in regard to this? Well, I tell you one thing that we have to learn very quickly, uh, and that's both, again, federally and provincially, and that is that when we institute programs like this, we have to take into consideration the trade relationships that we have. And if we're going to uh, make it more expensive for people to invest here than in the United States, which is just a stone's throw from us here in Hamilton, for example, uh, then um, business people tend to make decisions based on uh, return on investment. So we, we don't want just investors here. We want investors here because they create jobs, and jobs are important to our economy. And those are the kind of questions that need to be asked. And um, obviously, in the case of the federal government, they certainly failed to take into account the trade relationship in the United States. And now we have a new administration coming in and saying that they're going to cut business taxes, and we're going to uh, be in a situation where um, the whole, our, our whole position of global competitiveness uh, hasn't been uh, well assessed. Is this is renewable energy creating a lot of jobs in Canada at this point? Are they all subsidized? Well, uh, certainly, if you look at the Ontario investments, uh, the uh, solar and wind, they're heavily subsidized. And again, um, you know, uh, we've been asking the questions as an opposition of give us give us a clear statement on the on how much you've invested versus the number of jobs that you've created. And there's no forthcoming answers. And if you look at some of the Auditor General's reports uh, in Ontario, um, they're very troubling as well. Uh, we, we certainly hear from opposition parties, whether it's yours or the NDP, and again, both provincially or federally, lots of people, and, and Kathleen Wynne's accused opposition parties, uh, uh, certainly provincially, of, of um, you know, making lots of noise and, and grandstanding and and, st- and trying to spread false facts, but don't really necessarily have a plan. What would the Conservatives do on a federal, uh, you know, on the federal platform with something like cap and trade or what Prime Minister Trudeau is imposing? Well, I think, well, you know, Scott, I can just go back to our record uh, under the, uh, the tenure that where we were in government. If you look, if you go to uh, Environment Canada, you'll see that, uh, as Kathleen Wynne said herself, all of the measures of air quality actually increased. In other words, emissions decreased. Uh, I, I know that the uh, Canadian Asthma Association put out a number of, uh, of press releases saying that the air quality got better. And, that, and by the way, um, not just greenhouse gases, but also noxious gases and particulate there's six to seven thousand people that die every year from air quality in that regard, from asthma and COPD. So this this directly affects people right away, and you can see that that the proof is in the pudding as far as the regulations that we put in uh, to reduce emissions, which were not overly onerous, which took into consideration that we need to have a strong economy while we continue to clean up the environment. Uh, we've certainly. Uh in the last six months, watched politics change on the world stage, especially with what's been happening in the United States. As you're out there visiting with constituents, David, do you see a change in tone? Are we at a turning point right now? A lot of people, when Donald Trump was first elected, said, well, they did it this way, they did it that way. And I remember saying all along that a lot of people are underestimating the protest vote. A lot of people are un- underestimating the silent majority that are feeling disenfranchised. Do, do you feel a tide turning here in any way? Well, certainly the people that we've talked to at the levees, the people we've had a number of uh, 
uh, of uh, uh, round tables and uh, open houses, some town halls, and uh, all of them are profoundly concerned with uh, the, the, those things that affect their pocketbooks, their ability to be able to help their kids get an education and be competitive in the next uh, global economy, the people just to pay their bills. And uh, um, the fact that we've had you know, no full-time jobs created in the last year, in, in fact, we've lost full-time employment, uh, that's concerning to everybody. I, I mean, people need to to uh, pay their bills, and whenever these things hit the pocketbook, it's uh, it's profoundly concerning to them. And uh, they've made it known to me, and I'm certainly they've made it known to government MPs as well. Do you feel that the uh, honeymoon is now over in Ottawa? Are, are we down to business now? Well, listen, we've certainly been down to business since we we uh, came back from the election. We've uh, pressed the government on making some good decisions, like. Uh, making sure that Energy East is adopted so that we can have our own oil that's uh, used by our own people. We've uh, Now that uh, uh, the new administration is there in the United States and going to uh, be in, in place very soon, uh, we've pushed that uh, negotiations for XL Pipeline, Keystone XL Pipeline, which, of course, the previous administration didn't want to do, needs to uh, 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 get very serious now. And we need to take into account, again, this is our largest trading partner in the United States, and if they do things to attract business, that, and of course business means jobs, then we need to stay competitive, and there hasn't been any forethought in that regard. And so we continue to hold the Liberal government to account uh, for that and, and many other things. And again, not the, not the least of which is, if you're going to say that you have a climate plan, show us the plan. Don't just introduce a tax and say that everything is going to get better. Let us, let us see how exactly that's going to equate to a reduction in emissions of all kinds. How will the Trump uh, inauguration change things in Canada? I guess a lot of that, you know, waits to be seen in, in what's false and in, in what's fact. Uh, but could this be an out for uh, Trudeau and, and team and such to maybe slow down cap and trade and things like that? Well, I don't know if it means to be an out, and I and I, I certainly I think you know you made a, a good statement earlier. Everybody's concerned about the environment, and I think uh, again threefold. We want we want uh, clean air for our kids, uh, clean land, and clean water. And you know, for example, one of the things that uh, we made sure was uh, financed was the there was a cleanup of Randall Reef, very important for Hamilton. So I, I don't think there's any any. I think these things need to be a priority, but they need to be a priority in the in this in again in the framework of making sure your economy continues to grow, is strong, so you can continue to to have these programs that actually reduce emissions, clean up the and clean up the environment. And there's a lots of previous damage that's done that we have to clean up, like Randall Reef is you know decades old, uh, and uh, we need to continue to keep that in mind. And so being globally competitive is important. It's not just important for Canadians' pocketbooks, which should be enough for us to take action. But it's also important, like I said, for these kind of environmental uh, uh, concerns, as well as even our social programs on a day-to-day basis. All right, before I let you go, I have to ask you about the leadership race, how that is going, and uh, how much chatter, how much uh, uh, attention has the name Kevin O'Leary drawn? I think <laughs> I think Kevin O'Leary and everybody's name has drawn a lot of attention, and I think one of the great things that uh, I'm excited about is uh, we have a lot of people who are interested in being the leader of the Conservative Party. So it means we're healthy and well, and uh, people see bright prospects uh, for uh, for uh, Conservative government in 2019. And so uh, that's that's why I'm watching as the uh, as the caucus chairman now. Uh, 
I'm just excited for my colleagues who are involved and anybody else who wants to get involved uh, before May. David Sweet has been with us, Flamborough Glanbrook, Conservative MP. David, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Happy New Year again to you and all your listeners. Thank you, David. Much appreciated. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Even over New Year's, he sort of he, he calmed down a little bit when he went to celebrate Christmas. Donald Trump, I'm speaking of, uh, when he went to ce- uh, celebrate Christmas down there in FLA, and then uh, sure enough, he went out and did the New Year's Eve thing and uh, and started chatting uh, about hacking and walls and all this sort of thing. And uh, he, here's what Donald Trump had to say at his New Year's Eve soiree. Well, I just want them to be sure, because it's a pretty serious charge, and I want them to be sure. And if you look at the weapons of mass destruction, that was a disaster, and they were wrong. And so I want them to be sure. I think it's unfair if they don't know. And I know a lot about hacking, and hacking is a very hard thing to prove. So it could be somebody else. And I also know things that other people don't know, and so they cannot be sure of the situation. Okay, this was in regard to hacking, uh, and he basically said that he's, and he's toned it down a bit. He's toned down the rhetoric a bit, because initially he said, well, no, I I don't believe what the FBI or the CIA says. It doesn't matter if there's 17 agencies that are out there that are saying, yeah, the Russians were involved in the hacking. Uh, But he says that, you know, he knows things that you don't know. And apparently the things that the CIA and the FBI don't know either. And hopefully this week we'll find out what the hell he knows that's creating so much confusion in his mind, in his office. Because he's the only one that seems to be confused about this. And when his communications person spoke on this issue... He said the idea that we're jump the idea that we're jumping to conclusions before we have a final report is frankly irresponsible. Which makes perfect sense. But are you calling the CIA and the FBI irresponsible? I don't know. And you know, I, I've Whenever I talk about this sort of thing, people will send me, well, whatever happened to the, ma- the, the weapons of mass destruction? Whatever happened to Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction? They were wrong about that. So conspiracy theories aplenty here. Uh, let's bring in Michael Diamond, principal of Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto. He is a conservative political pundit. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Very good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, what does Donald Trump know that the rest don't know? Well, you know, the president-elect should know things that the rest of us don't know, and he shouldn't be broadcasting that. But what he should know should be coming through his intelligence briefings that he's been intermittently agreeing to take or attend. Uh, And we know that the intelligence agencies that would be giving him this uh, daily briefing uh, have already made their conclusion. We know that they think the Russians are behind uh, the, the hacking issues. So... I don't think he knows anything that we don't know. And, you know, he says he knows a lot about hacking. It was during the debate where he said he knew really nothing about hacking, but he knew that it could have been, you know, a 500-pound man or his 10-year-old son. Yeah. Uh, Will something come out today or tomorrow that will reveal this? I mean, is this man just not painting himself into a corner here? 
Well, you know, he had that uh, press conference that was supposed to be uh, announced uh two or three weeks ago, about a week before Christmas, where he was going to make that final announcement about the future of him and his great company that he was going to be entrusting to his children, and he canceled that. So Donald Trump's promising a lot. You know, he's, he, he promised that today or tomorrow something's going to come out on this, but he's also promised, you know, that uh, Melania's visa will be released. He's promised at some point to release tax returns that are not under audit. So I don't think we should hold our breath that we're going to hear any more from him on this. So do you think he'll just go quiet on this? I mean, doesn't yeah. he have to say something? You know, if, if it turns out that all of this looks to be true, how, how does he position himself? Um, you know, I think he'll ignore it and he'll pivot, just like he has with absolutely every controversy where he's been painted it into a corner, be it, uh, be it during the campaign, be it since the election, be it uh, in his previous previous life before politics. He's, he's very skilled at this. He can, he can ignore reality and still have his talking points heard and picked up upon. And uh, at, at this point, he had no damage to inflict upon himself by being uh, braggadocious on this. Um, you know, I see everything you're, you know, I hear everything you're saying, Michael, but this is the presidency. I mean, um, w- w- will he not be held to account for this? I mean, you know, it's, for example, uh, Mr. President-elect, it's Tuesday or Wednesday. What do you know that the CIA and the FBI don't? Uh, you know, and he'll, he'll make an excuse because he should be held to account. Well, if he says that he's going to say something, he should later go and do this. But I'm sure he'll use a national security issue uh, or, you know, the confidentiality that it's uh, uh, got to be kept secret for now. But in due time, you, you all will find out and we'll never find out. And, you know, eventually when meat goes on the bones of this, uh, it's going to be known that, uh, you know, the uh, security agencies, the intelligence agencies were probably correct in uh, their unanimous, uh, unanimous conclusion that this was the uh, work of the uh, Russian Federation. So uh, his his communications person said that, uh, his press secretary said that, you know, it's frankly irresponsible to jump to conclusions before we have a final report. You just mentioned that the CIA, FBI, and I think there were 17 other agencies have already done that and, and, and come to their conclusion. So what does this statement say from his press secretary? You know, yeah, they're going to run in contrast, uh, contrast to the intelligence agencies that are very important for the president to both trust and work with. And the CIA particularly can be very useful, uh, to, to a, to a president. So it's, it's a bizarre way to start off the, uh, the, uh, administration. And they are pointing out, and he did this during the campaign too, of course, about the, uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But I am, fairly confident, and I wish I had gone and checked this before coming on air, but I'm fairly confident that the weapons of mass destruction was actually the findings of a British intelligence agency, and that that is what formulated the speech that George W. Bush gave to a joint session of Congress when announcing the war, and that that may have not actually been the findings of the U.S. intelligence uh, agencies that Donald Trump is now slandering. Is there a point where the majority of people will say, no, got you, wrong, Uh, you can't spin this, we caught you. Will this be one of those moments? Will there ever be one of those moments? We've talked about this before. Like, this is a president just waiting to be impeached. There should have been this moment well before, uh, and that uh, the next two years... 
you know, within reason, unless he's very, very egregious, will probably be clear sailing to him. But if he's, uh, because of the uh, very large majorities, the Republicans have in both houses, if he's completely abhorrent and the House of Representatives uh, refuses to initiate uh, impeachment hearings, if there is good cause to do so, uh, I think you would see in the midterm election a stark turnover in the uh, Congress to uh, enable that to happen. That's the next time the people will be able to have a say on Donald Trump will be the referendum that is the midterm election, which will happen in uh, November 2018. Does he have to change his tone on Russia? I mean, Putin friend or foe? I mean, are we missing something here? Could this man be the secret to these relations that we've been that have mystified us for years? Or, or is he just a BSer? You know, it would be so great if uh, if this was actually the start of sunny ways with Russia and the United yeah. States. But it certainly won't be. Vladimir Putin is playing this man like a fiddle. And if you look at the contrast between other leaders, Mitt Romney calling Russia the greatest geopolitical uh, foe of uh, our time in the 2012 election, and uh, President Obama uh, mocking him by saying that uh, the 1980s called them want their foreign policy back. Uh, it's very amusing today to see Obama now take action against uh, Russians in America, the Russian uh, diplomatic corps. Uh, very amusing. But if you think, you know, John McCain, who said he looked into Vladimir Putin's eyes and he saw three things, a K, a G, and a B, or even Stephen Harper, who told him to get out of Ukraine, you see these strong leaders with very strong, strong conservative leaders, that for the most part, with strong uh, positions on Russia. And Donald Trump just came in and erased all of that with his uh, buttering up uh, to a dictator. Do you think that you mentioned that uh, that that Putin is playing Trump like a fiddle? Could it be that it's the other way around? I mean, we're all hoping that, but is there something there that we're not seeing? Well, let's hope so. Uh, you know, Trump just—I think his personality has shown a few things. And watching him over the last you know eighteen months that he's been in politics has shown us a few things. One. He, he is thinking a few steps ahead, which I think a lot of people assume he's not because it seems so bizarre and counterintuitive, everything he does, but it, it has been working for him, so he deserves credit and some, uh, in, for his insight on that. Uh, but, but then if you look at the other way, I mean, Hillary Clinton, I think her most compelling line in her speech at the convention was, a man who can be provoked with a tweet should not have the nuclear codes. And, and, and if you look at that, there's, there's, two ways to get a reaction from Donald Trump. Say something nice about him, and he will love you. Say something negative, slightly negative, not very negative, and he will take, uh, he will take action against you. Uh, so, what about his recent tweet uh, in regard to General Motors? I mean, again, you, you know, you, you're, you're, you're entering into private industry territory, which can greatly affect a lot of things. Uh, is this the way he will, he will conduct business, do you think? Oh, absolutely, because it's working for him. And remember, I laughed. I laughed at him. I think it was a Ford plant, but his kickoff speech to Trump Tower, where everybody was laughing because he paid people to attend through an acting agency, $50, and the, the speech was just bizarre. One of the things he talked about was how when he's president, he'll call the president, I believe it was Ford, and, and he's going to talk about the tax they're going to put on, that he's going to put on as president. And none of this is actually something the president would have had power to do. Of course, it's the Congress that would have to do that. The Congress has to uh, ratify trade agreements would have to have a say on getting out. But that said, Donald Trump said he will do this, and now he's getting these announcements, and he's, he is politically right to, uh, to boast about it. 
Okay, so in regard to briefings, lots of chatter at the beginning that he wasn't attending any. Is he attending more? What's his attendance record like on these? Well, we're hearing less about him not attending, so uh, I think it is safe to assume that he is starting to uh, take it a bit more seriously. But that said, he's he's not, uh, e- even if he's attending, if he's not listening and he doesn't care what they have to say because he's already determined that these agencies are incompetent, it doesn't really matter. What about uh, things, uh, just even as the transition happens from one from one president to another, we're, we're seeing... Uh, Obviously, President Barack Obama react, kick out, expel Russian diplomats, also positions on Israel. I mean, it's like these two men are still battling with each other and the campaign is over. Uh, Yet one can't wait to get behind the wheel and reverse everything the other one has just done. You know, I really think it's uh, unfortunate. I, I'm not a fan of Barack Obama. Would never have voted for him. Would have taken Hillary Clinton over him when he beat her. Preferred John McCain, even Mitt Romney, who I'm not a fan of. Uh, but uh, one, one thing I always thought about Barack Obama was this is a man with a level of class to him. He's a dignified man. And I think the way he's reacted to Donald Trump, who had been quite nice to him after the election. Obviously, there was a great deal of back and forth and a, a terrible history between the two of them pre-election, but Donald Trump had been quite uh, respectful and tasteful after the election, so had the president for the most part, until the John Kerry announcement on Israel. And I think it's really, you know, it is true, we only have one president at the time, they only have one president at the time, but to undertake major policy announcements, major shifts, uh, to to have you know, foreign policy uh, uh, changes uh, with Russia. In the twilight, the lame duck session, the post-election section, se- section of a presidency is really uh, not, not necessary. I think it's only hurting Obama's legacy as a man of uh, grace and class and dignity. And there was even some talk that today in between the uh, sessions of Congress, when the gavel went down but before the next session was called to order by Paul Ryan, that Obama was going to appoint uh, Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court on a recess appointment for two years, and he didn't. I don't know if that time has passed yet, if he could still do it. I don't think it's likely, but the fact is, it's the behavior he's exposed in the last couple of weeks that made people think that he would do something so ridiculous. How do you think Barack Obama will be remembered as he exits? Uh, you know, I think that uh, you've got to look back at how other presidents have been remembered when they left office. And I think uh, it will take a few years to really know. But one thing I know is if you look at the Clintons, in 2000, he left fairly popular. He would have probably beat George W. Bush for re-election if he was allowed a third turn. And they were really not dignified in the last couple of days. They did those uh, last-minute pardons to uh, friends and donors and uh, clients of her brothers. They took the White House China with them, and they did a whistle-stop tour on what should have been George W. Bush's day for the inauguration, instead of just getting out of town and going going to their new uh, home in uh, New York State. And, and they didn't do any of those things. And for quite a while, that dogged the Clintons about how unclassy they were in exiting the White House. In the course of time, in the short term, the foundation helped rehabilitate him, her work in the Senate. Uh, but I think that's the risk Obama is taking right now, that he's just behaving in such a political manner instead of an American manner, that that's what he's going to be remembered for in the short term. I think in the long term, we're going to have to see how much of his legacy Donald Trump is going to push the reverse on and uh, uproot uh, and uh, get rid of. And it will be fairly easy for some of them because there were so many executive orders. 
Uh, it was interesting after this election and the huge upset that we saw, which which took a lot of people by surprise. No two ways about it. Um, it was interesting to hear in the first couple of days people try to justify how it happened. And I could never understand that because for me, as I mentioned in the preamble, uh, this has been, I've seen, as I see it, a protest vote from day one, very similar to a Brexit or, or anything like that. But at the beginning, it was, uh, you know, uh, the alt-right, which we haven't heard a lot of from lately, but, you know, the alt-right and racists and all of these people that uh, that Donald Trump voted for. And as they finally tried to, to break down who and how this man actually got it, got in, they're finally realizing that there's a silent majority that is disenfranchised out there. Do you find the mood completely different now than it was post right after the election, post-election? Yeah, we're certainly hearing a lot less about that. It's been a, a while since I, I've heard anyone uh, call Trump supporters blanket statements like racist or sexist yeah. or xenophobes. Uh, and maybe the reason for that is perhaps... Well, Americans were off for Christmas and going to visit home or going on vacation or going to visit friends. They actually started talking to people and they realized that they all know people who voted for Donald Trump. Like, unless you live in a, uh, you know, in Donald Trump's neighborhood in New York City or parts of, uh, uh, richer parts of Southern California, chances are, or, or Minneapolis and some urban centers, you know people who voted for Donald Trump. You like people that voted for Donald Trump. You're related to people who voted for Donald Trump. So perhaps it was the holiday season that helped uh, bring together the country by reminding folks that they all know people who voted for this man, and they're not racist. Good point. Uh, Fascinating times. Michael Diamond has been with us, principal of Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto, a conservative political pundit. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.